This is Epicenter, episode 228, with guests John Bass and Corey Tadaro. This episode of Epicenter is brought to you by Gnosis, an open platform for businesses to create their own prediction market applications on top of the Ethereum network. They recently launched Gnosis X, a challenge inviting developers to build apps on top of the Gnosis platform. To learn more, go to epicenter.tv slash Gnosis X. Hi, welcome to Epicenter, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global blockchain revolution. My name is Sebastian Couture, and today we have an episode where we're going to focus on healthcare. And um, who better to have on today than uh, two people who are working very hard on solving some of the hardest problems in the healthcare industry, and specifically, you know, the U.S. healthcare industry, which, uh, at least from my standpoint and from where I live, you know, has a lot of problems that uh, it, it it's uh, looking to solve. Uh, I think we'll get into that uh, during the episode and sort of the differences between you know, the U.S. and, and other countries uh, when it comes to healthcare. Uh, but let's introduce our guest today, uh, John Bass, who is the CEO of Hashed Health, and Corey Tadero, who is the uh, chief product officer and also running their labs initiative. And so Hashed Health is a, an innovation firm, a healthcare innovation firm that is focused on accelerating the use of blockchain and distributed ledger technologies in the healthcare industry. And they're located in Nashville, uh, which is sort of a, a, a hub in the U.S. for um, for healthcare and specifically hospital companies that are uh, situated there. Uh, so, hi guys. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks. thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Before we get started and before we dive into this topic, which is, uh, which is a very vast topic, uh, as, I've, as I've learned in doing this research, is um, let's let's first uh, get a bit of background from each of you. So perhaps starting with John, uh, please tell us a bit about yourself, how you got involved in this space, and your background in the healthcare industry. Sure. Yeah. So I've been in the healthcare industry, uh, specifically healthcare technology, for around 23 years. Um, I've been uh, fortunate to be a part of a few different healthcare technology startups uh, that grew up and starting back in the 90s, so I'm a kind of a product of the dot-com days of the 90s, um, where we uh, created a, a B2B platform, um, one of the first kind of B2B platforms specifically here in supply chain um, called impacthealth.com. Uh, and looking back at that, you know, the tech was not that difficult. What was hard was getting people to collaborate, getting people like hospitals and their trading partners to to sit at a table together and work together in new ways using the internet. Um, and so that process, we, we survived the dot-com crash, um, and we uh, were, ended up um, were being acquired by a company called Global Healthcare Exchange, which is still around today. After about 10, diff- 10 years or so uh, with uh, GHX, I helped start another company called InVivoLink, which was a care management platform for orthopedic and spine episodes of care. Um, both, if you think about it, are kind of these, these concepts around shared operating systems and healthcare. So 
Um, when you talk about shared operating systems, you're talking about fundamentally, you know, trust and transparency and interoperability and studying clinical and financial performance across a value chain or an episode of care or a revenue cycle. And, you, and you, what you're doing is you're kind of trying to stitch together information from a bunch of siloed relational databases. Uh, so, so through those two startups, um, I, I did kind of my 10,000 hours uh, trying to get people to collaborate using technology. And so that's become kind of the theme of my career. Um, and when we sold in VivaLink back in 15 to HCA, I really began to study blockchain uh, in earnest. Um, and I just kind of couldn't let it go. And, and so I started the Nashville Blockchain Meetup, which, is, um, which has grown a lot over the last few years and eventually started Hashed. Um, to create a firm that was purely focused on using blockchain to build products that solve you know, unmet needs um, in the healthcare space. And I fundamentally believe that we are um, approaching kind of a financial crisis here in the U.S. Um, and I think that that, dri that feeling drives a lot of our work here at Hashed. Um, you know, over the last 20 years or so, I've watched these unmet needs that I was talking about cause us to accelerate towards this crisis where we've got currently $3.3 trillion being spent on healthcare, roughly 18% of GDP. It's about $10,000 per person here in the US. And, and by 2016, it's gonna be $5.7 trillion. And at the same time, we have this really uneven kind of quality and access. So we're not getting our money's worth. Um, so we feel like Blockchain has the ability to help us fix some of these value chains that are driving a lot of the cost and trust and transparency issues. Uh, so so um, that's, uh, that's a little bit about me and Hash. And I'll let Corey introduce himself as well. Well, I'm Corey Todaro. I, I, I lead product design and, and Hash Labs within Hashtel. Uh, my career in healthcare started a little over 10 years ago with a company called Vanguard Health Systems which is uh, uh, an example of something unique in the United States, which is a corporate-run hospital company, uh, corporate, uh, hospital corporation, if you will. Um, we own and operated 26 hospitals in six states. We also ran businesses in two of those states. Uh, I worked in our strategy and innovation, uh, right under our chief strategy innovation officer. I had a front row seat to the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare being passed. Um, also, I was involved in a lot of our efforts around fundamentally new payment models for healthcare. Um, something called fee-for-value fee for or outcomes-based payment, um, as opposed to the prevailing payment paradigm in healthcare almost the world over, which is fee-for-service. A doctor does a procedure, they get paid for that procedure. Um, but instead, should we be paying physicians and health systems based upon the quality of what they're doing? Yes, you did a surgery, but was the surgery effective? Was it efficacious in relieving the overall condition? Uh, was it... Um, was it thrifty <laughs> or was it wildly spinthrift um, in the sense of, of, of all kinds of measures that we can do? Uh, I, I'm a veteran of trying to make data systems inside hospital companies do things they were never designed to do. Um, so our claims, uh, medical claims payment systems were never designed for value-based care. They were designed to do the one thing they do really well now, which is get paid fee-for-service. Um, and we tried to pull data from a variety of existing uh, stacks inside our hospital company to get it to give us the data that we would need to really uh, build a foundation for a fundamentally new way of paying for healthcare. And uh, I, I'm 
I'm not ashamed to say, but we failed. <laughs> uh, it's a really hard battle to get those data systems and the paradigms, the way we think about how healthcare is paid for and delivered to change. So um, I've got the scars of change management as well. Uh, following uh, our acquisition by a larger hospital company in America, which seems to be a trend uh, that's been going on for the last seven or eight years, I became a venture capitalist in the health IT space. I spent about three years, about 15 investments uh, at the seed and early stage gave me a really good view into what the healthcare enterprises are um, ready to do in terms of technical innovation um, and disruption and how they view new technology and what their appetite for that is largely. But it was in that role I started researching blockchain. Um, late 2015, early 2016, uh, I met John Bass when the Nashville blockchain meetup was four, four of us in a bar. Um, and when John said he had the idea for Hashed Health, I said, hey, I'm ready to quit my job today. Um, and get going on it because once you uh, climb that learning curve of blockchain, it really is quite exciting. Um, the the kinds of problems we think we can address with this new technical architecture makes us passionate advocates for it because we've lived the problems in healthcare and now we want to design solutions we think um, are fundamentally new um, but uniquely efficacious for for solving these long-standing, seemingly intractable problems. Great, thank you. Um, so you you mentioned one thing that uh, I think perhaps we, we should we should talk about, and that is change management. And I, I I'll ask this question to the both of you. Yeah, how how much has change management played in sort of? I mean, both of you have been in the in the in the innovation space around healthcare for you know, a number of years. How much has change management played in the ability or the non-ability? of your, your clients, customers, uh, to implement, you know, solutions, um, that might, uh, on the face of it, solve very important problems, but, um, uh, just can't seem to move with the change. Well, um, John can come in, uh, here's my comment on change management in general. Um, people will do what they get incented to do. Um, and often the problem with change management is that you're introducing a new workflow, you're introducing a new technology that fundamentally conflicts with the existing incentive structure. Um, and I've seen it time and time again. And why I think blockchain is somewhat unique. And so change management does present a, a fundamental issue when we talk about some of the disruptive applications of blockchain. Um, I can't sell to an enterprise technology that's going to fundamentally disrupt their core revenue generation engine. Uh, it just makes no sense to them. Um, on the flip side, though, blockchain is really compelling because uh, blockchains are somewhat unique systems for generating incentive for behaviors uh, among all sides of a transactional set. So that's true of cryptocurrencies. It's true of the most successful blockchain use cases that we've studied in the sense that um, there's got to be a win-win-win, and blockchains, I think, are uniquely situated to do that, unlike some other technical architectures, which are more extractive of value um, from players. Yeah, and I think what Corey is mentioning here is part of the challenge. I mean, I think the healthcare is full of great use cases for blockchain, um, you know, where there's trust and transparency and incentive alignment issues that we can solve. But you know, you have to consider not only the technology, but also the business model and the governance structure and the, the change management process in order to find the right use case that's going to move quickly and be um, embraced by the, um, 
by the industry. And so I, I think that this is part, this is one of the key challenges. Um, and, and we spend a lot of time thinking about which use cases can, can be realized and change management is a, is a key uh, element uh, that we think about in terms of um, which projects we choose to, to focus on. I think those are some key insights that uh, a lot of people working in this space can definitely benefit from. So just coming back to, uh, to Nashville, you mentioned you're, you're situated in Nashville. You both st sort of started in the blockchain space in Nashville. Uh, of course, there's uh, some other blockchain companies in Nashville, uh, specifically you know, one that we know really well, uh, BTC Media. Um, you know, talk, about the, talk about the space there. You know, wh what's the blockchain space like in Nashville? And then more specifically to healthcare, why is Nashville such an important uh, city in the U.S.? Yeah, and Nashville's pretty amazing right now. And I'm a, I'm a native, so I'm like a, a unicorn here in Nashville because almost everyone else has moved to Nashville in the last uh, 15 years or 20 years. Um, but, you know, Nashville's kind of blowing up right now. It was number one in job growth, I think, in 2016 and number two in job growth in 2017. Um, it's becoming, you know, it's always been kind of a, crea a very creative uh, city. Um, it's known for musical and entertainment creativity, but, um, but there, you know, this is my third healthcare technology startup to be a part of uh, in Nashville. And it's just a rich environment. A lot of your, in healthcare, a lot of your customers are here. For 18 publicly traded healthcare companies are based in Nashville. Um, over 4,000 healthcare companies generally are based in Nashville. Um, and so there's a lot of healthcare technology, healthcare services, and especially provider side um, healthcare companies that are based here. I believe uh, 40 or 50% of the for profit healthcare companies uh, in, in the United States have their headquarters here in Nashville. So for being a, a you know a mid-sized city, it's very concentrated in terms of healthcare talent, uh, technology talent, um, and creative talent, and so that gives us an amazing um, uh, puts us in an amazing position to um, introduce um, technologies um, like blockchain for healthcare um, and kind of help lead. Um, the way. I mean, there's, there's a real hunger because of some of the problems I mentioned in the intro around this kind of financial crisis we've created. There's a real hunger for uh, new solutions and new business models to fix um, these healthcare problems. I mean, just think about the, the Amazon announcement recently where they're getting together with uh, Berkshire Hathaway and, and others to kind of form this. You know, so there's all this kind of new energy around the healthcare marketplace, around finding creative solutions. And so all of that you know, uh, provides a really rich atmosphere for us to use Nashville as a base for, uh, for change. Interesting. Oh, that must put you in a very, uh, in a very good position then to, to, to have dialogue with, uh, with companies in the healthcare space. Absolutely. Uh, so. Yeah, and on top of that, we've got BTC Media's here, and and you know, very uh, David Bailey and his team are um, very, uh, uh, you know, have been very influential in kind of some of the work projects we've been doing. Um, and there's a number of different 
startups in the blockchain space. So there's, there's also a very good kind of blockchain and crypto um, uh, community that's emerging here. Great. So let's, uh, let's move to the, uh, the core topic here, which is the healthcare industry. Um, so let's, let's unpack this first. Uh, so for our listeners, uh, just for context, so of course, our guests are in the US. I'm located in France where, and from Canada, uh, where um, you know, all of those countries have very different healthcare um, sort of structures, healthcare service structures. And, uh, and um, my, my opinion of you know, the, the healthcare uh, industry in the US is, is um, I, I, I don't want to say it's, it's, it's negative, but it's just, it, it seems strange to me. So please, guys, uh, help, help me unpack you know, the, um, the sort of medical industrial complex uh, as it were, in the U.S., uh, who are the players and what are the interactions between them and where does the patient sit in all of this? And let's remember, let's, let's remember the patient is a patient, not a, not a customer or a consumer, right? A health consumer is not a bad term. Well, at least not in the United States. Um, sure. Well, it is a very complex industry. And one of the reasons why we think blockchain um, is, is so appealing is because it's a very, very complex um, industry with lots of different players. Um, unlike financial services in which you have a large uh, a range of large entities who essentially do the same thing to each other. Healthcare, you've got pharmaceutical manufacturers, you've got wholesale distributors of pharmaceuticals, um, you've got the pharmacy distribution companies, um, the technical and software and payment middlemen in that arena as well. You've got health systems, physicians, insurance companies, uh, the list goes on and on and on. And there are some very complex workflows between all these different parties. But to simplify it, even outside the United States, the world over, every healthcare economy has payer or payers. That may be the government, it may be private insurance companies, it may be employer groups, it may be individuals um, who are responsible for all the cost of healthcare. Um, and there are providers, uh, providers who deliver service. That service can be an action, um, an office visit, or it can be a product in the sense of a medical device or a pharmaceutical. Um, and so with that basic vocabulary of there's a buyer, and there's service providers and product providers, and there's the recipient of those um, who is the patient, who is sometimes the payer, sometimes not. Um, with that basic vocabulary, we can start to explore problems and complications in the industry, not only in the United States, but globally um, or in any, any setting whatsoever. Um, but fun, those are the fundamentals. And so uh, when I get into conversations with my European colleagues and who, who may not come from healthcare and they turn to me and they say something that I find incredibly naive and they say, but healthcare is free, isn't it? <laughs> well, well, first of all, it's never free. Um, you may not be paying out of pocket when you go to the doctor, but you certainly have paid otherwise uh, to provide that, that service to you. So no matter if it's single payer or commercial insurance or no insurance at all, as it is in, in, in some parts of the world, um, healthcare is never free. And there's an ecosystem around um, the movement of money and services, um, just like in any other industry, fundamentally. The United States is somewhat unique um, in the sense that we have um, actually the largest payer um, of healthcare services in the United States is the U.S. government um, in the form of Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, so Medicare is our, um, our social insurance program, uh, primarily for the elderly, but not exclusively. 
Um, and of course, elderly being a, a far larger consumer or user of healthcare services than any other age group, um, it stands to reason that the U.S. government has an outsized source or an outsized voice in, in healthcare policy in the United States. We also have commercial insurance, um, which is a, a somewhat unique artifact and employer-sponsored insurance which is a unique artifact going back to World War II in the United States that I'm not going to get into. But a lot of Americans either get their insurance subsidized through their employer, um, who pays a portion of the premium, and the employee also pays um, an increasingly significant portion of that uh, premium for health insurance. Um, or individuals will go out and buy insurance on the open market. And um, insurance is somewhat unique in America in that it you pay a premium in order to get access to the system itself, um, but oftentimes you continue to pay um, over and above um, your premium or what's on insurance. So there's co-pays and deductibles and, um, and a lot of these trends. Um, but globally, I would say the healthcare industry um, around the world is very concerned with cost containment. Uh, that might be because of Western lifestyles um, and the advancement of medical technology leads to longer lifespans. We see an increase in chronic disease. Um, and in forms of diabetes, hypertension, obesity, et cetera. These have turned out to be very expensive uh, conditions to treat and to control. Um, and so no matter who the buyer of the healthcare is, if it's the government in a single payer form, if it's a, an employer who is, is spending on, on, on services for their employees or for individuals, our longer lifespans, our lifestyles in general are leading to higher and higher healthcare costs. And everyone is concerned for how can we find ways to have better care um, at a better experience for the patient um, at a lower cost. Uh, and I think those three goals, something we called the triple aim about 10 years ago in healthcare, um, seem to be the mantra for, for everyone around the world. And so that, that really is what can unite us. In terms of the role of the patient, um, I think it's almost universally true uh, that healthcare is done to you. Uh, <laughs> um, as it's also done for you. Um, but the patient, to say the least, is not, uh, doesn't have a very active role in this. Um, we, we, we are not active purchasers of healthcare. Although it comes out of our pocket, none of the decision points along the way in terms of what, what services we're receiving, what will it cost, are really up to us at all. Um, we're also disintermediated from the data that gets generated about us that are held inside hospitals and physicians' offices by regulation, of course. Um, they need to keep those records um, to, to justify what they're doing and, and to protect our data, et cetera. Um, but often, um, uh, healthcare does seemingly does not work for the patient in all cases. Um, and uh, that, that has a lot of causes, um, but it's somewhat unique um, among industries in that the primary buyer and consumer of the service has very little say and how that service is delivered or what it costs. John? No, I think you're right, Corey. Um, you know, I think if you look at um, healthcare spending versus GDP and income, the same cost trajectories and concerns um, are shown across the world. Um, and, and so at the same time, the variation in quality on a variety of different uh, healthcare services are also shared across the world. It's just we feel them more acutely in the United States because we're spending almost 20% of our GDP. Um, and so, but what's happening here seems to be, be being exported 
And so we, we do feel like there's commonality there um, between the U.S. And, and other countries. And so a lot of the work that we're doing at Hashed is to address some of these kind of cost or cost quality issues that are being felt everywhere. This episode of Epicenter is brought to you by Gnosis. Gnosis is an open platform for businesses to create their own prediction markets on the Ethereum network. Prediction markets are powerful tools for aggregating information about the expected outcome of future events. So this can be used for things like information gathering, incentivizing behaviors, making governance decisions, or even creating insurance products. So in order to turn Gnosis into the most powerful forecasting tool in the world, they recently launched Gnosis X. It's a challenge that invites developers to build applications on top of the platform. And the best applications per category will be rewarded up to $100,000 in GNO tokens. So throughout the year, Gnosis will announce different categories for the challenge. And the current challenge has categories for science and R&D, token diligence, and blockchain project integration. Gnosis also provides the SDK, which allows you to easily get started with everything you need to get coding. And they also provide dedicated support channels throughout the challenge for teams and solo builders. Are you up for the challenge? Get started now. To learn more and to sign up, go to epicenter.tv slash GnosisX. We'd like to thank Gnosis for their support of Epicenter. So one thing that you mentioned, which I think is quite telling, is that it's one of the industries where um, the, the the consumer is perhaps the most concerned, but doesn't necessarily have a lot of say uh, in the sort of the offering, right? Or in the, the, the services rendered. Um, and, and even, you know, to extend on that, sort of the the data that is produced, right? So as a as a consumer of healthcare, you know, I, I don't really have access to my medical records. Don't really know where they are. They're stored in different places, perhaps with different doctors. Um, so there there seems to be a lot of inefficiencies, and that that that's sort of just the surface of it. Um, can you describe for us what are, in your opinion, the biggest inefficiencies in in uh, in the healthcare space? And, you know, perhaps what, you know, if you could give us some order of magnitude of like what those inefficiencies costs in terms of maybe like dollar figures or even human lives. Well, so I mentioned earlier on that we're headed. So um, right now we're in the United States, we're at 3.3 trillion, um, 18, around 18% of GDP. The common kind of analysis is that one third of that is waste. Um, so uh, there's a lot of administrative burden and a lot of inefficiencies in the healthcare environment. So that's kind of the, you know, the cost savings opportunity that we talk about. You know, in, in addition, um, you know, there's a, a real pricing problem with healthcare services, especially here in the U.S. And so um, the, the variation in cost for a procedure, you know, for things like CT scans and colonoscopies and knee replacements. Um, a lot of work has been done by um, someone we're a big fan of, Michael Porter at Harvard and, and others around kind of these, these variations and kind of the price of services and the quality of those services. So we've got a value problem in healthcare. We've got a, a problem with the relationship between cost and quality. Uh, we've got an opportunity to use blockchain to address this complex relationship between commerce and care that's, that is, you know, I, I was, a lot of people say it's broken. Um, we feel like it's working as designed. We've designed a, uh, a system 
based on claims infrastructure and fee-for-service and just a very much a volume-based uh, reward system that incentivizes people to overuse and overprescribe and um, and uh, overtest and you know and with no regard for quality. So one of the the key things that we're working on at Hashed is and it makes us so excited is is this kind of idea of designing an economy specifically for healthcare for value based care. Um, designing an exchange um, that we can talk about around the rational and transparent, open buying and selling of healthcare services. You know, these and other concepts are why I started Hashed and why I think there's so much excitement uh, around what we're doing. Yeah, I, I mean, but it is a huge market. I mean, think 20% of our gross domestic product in the United States is kind of what we're talking about. In terms of specific inefficiencies, and I think John is right on that the system is working as it's been designed to work. We're just realizing that that design is 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 not what we want, um, and so we really need to think hard about how we move some fundamental things in order to engender different behaviors. Um, healthcare is a very conservative industry, um, in some senses, rightly so, because they're dealing with with people's lives, uh, people's health, um, and so they should move very cautiously. Um, but in terms of technology, healthcare has always been ironically behind the curve. Um, not so much in treatment technology is where we see those those new innovations, robots and uh, genomics, et cetera. But in terms of administrative technology, um, healthcare has always been behind the curve. In the United States, cloud technology is just becoming the norm in healthcare, whereas the rest of the world or the rest of industry, you know, you really saw that eight, ten years ago. Um, and so um, it, administratively, we have processes um, which are fundamentally um, more on the spectrum of the paper-based side um, than some, um, some more uh, streamlined uh, technical solutions around administration. And additionally, because it's so fractured um, that you've got a health insurance company, you've got multiple providers who have multiple contracts with multiple health insurance companies, um, uh, administrative clearing of payment um, and service delivery, authorization for that service delivery requires a lot of back and forth between multiple parties. And so our, our, our technical infrastructure, primarily based on something called EDI, uh, electronic data interfacing, which goes back to the Perlin airlift um, to give you a sense of how old some of that technology is, at least in terms of its conception, um, is really brittle infrastructure, uh, transactional infrastructure. Um, and that creates lots of inefficiencies. So uh, I've created a video where I talk about uh, writing a prescription and getting that, uh, that, that, that the drug to the patient's hand can involve 45 administrative backend touch points that the patient is completely unaware of. Um, and oftentimes they break down and they have to be restarted and no one, uh, no one of those 45 points really knows what's happening in any of the other 45 points. Um, and so we've got a lot of um, sort of mindless administrative paper pushing, for lack of a better word, with no real um, oversight or overview into the overall process that's taking place. Um, and that's where we get a lot of results, like the patient feeling disempowered, not knowing what's going on. Why does it cost so much? Um, these kinds of reactions that we have to it are based upon the fundamental uh, dysfunction of administrative back-end systems in the industry more broadly. 
I think you, you you hit the nail on the head when you say that uh, you know the, the healthcare industry is one of the most advanced in terms of treat- treatment technologies, but in terms of administrative technologies is is, is really behind. And you know, I, I have friends sort of who work in the uh, med tech uh, s- s- space, and this this is exactly the sentiment that they've reflected to me is that uh, it's it's sort of like you know uh, walk into you know the 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 hottest startup and they're using all the latest MacBooks or whatever, but like still using, you know, paper-based uh, mail to communicate or something like that. We seem to be stuck in these, like with paper and faxes in these 1980s era pipeline, uh, pipeline value chains with people, you know, who are sitting there extracting value. Uh, and, you know, and I think, so we've got this opportunity to kind of change a lot of the, how those value chains work and you know and blockchain is really good at exposing who's adding value to a value chain and so uh, we are excited about uh, uh, you know promoting systems that return value to the consumer i just heard an anecdote there's a software company uh provides uh most of their customers still prefer on-prem servers for their solution and they're having trouble migrating them up to the cloud and um just to, to document how bad it is they just finally off loaded their final on-prem DOS customer in 2018. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that, that took me aback. Um, and, and so given the, the breadth of the industry, how many players there are, the variations in their technical stacks are vast. Um, and so it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to move or to change all at once. Sure. And, and if there's one thing that uh, I think uh, maybe the U.S. and France have in common in terms of uh, you know, the healthcare industry is just the, the complexity of the administration. Uh, I've got a stack that's probably about three inches high of papers um, because uh, at some point the the French uh, uh, Medicare organization sort of didn't know who my new insurer was and then, you know, all this stuff stacked up and now I've got to go back and you know, get all that paperwork to them and figure it out by myself. And yeah, it, it, it'll take me a while. Um, it's been sitting, it's also been sitting there for a while, um, <laughs> as these things often do. Um, so yeah, let's move on to, so that, that's a great, uh, that's a great intro into, into hashed health. Uh, so let's, let's then, um, dive in deeper into, uh, what you guys are doing, uh, specifically. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that, um, hash health is an, an, an innovation organization that, is focused on bringing blockchain and distributed ledger technologies to the healthcare industry. Uh, so please describe us to us what fundamentally is Hashed Health and and what what is your company doing? Yeah, so you know we're a products company, but when we started the company, when Corey and I kind of got together early on, a couple things, um, you know, our heads were full of disruptive ideas around a lot of the things we've talked about so far and. Medical records, you know, this concept of a, a patient portal where patients are opening and closing the door to their medical records as they see providers, uh, you know, shared ledgers for episodes of care, um, new types of value-based contracting solutions for, uh, you know, clinical and pharma, um, improving clinical trials, improving insurance, all of these great use cases that are very disruptive. Um, but we also realized a few things pretty quickly you know, um, we, we knew that, you know, back then we needed to focus on what could um, become meaningful in a short period of time, and we needed to kind of uh, grab it. We were a startup, so we needed to make sure we were 
um, building kind of a roadmap towards the, these disruptive things by solving real problems for real customers uh, in, a, in a short um, time frame. And knowing that most of those early use cases were B2B, you know, what, what simple use cases can we uh, define and then build a network around? So as Corey mentioned, it, it was, it's not like our previous uh, work where it's build a product, sell the product. In the minimally viable network concept is as important often as the uh, minimally viable products that we create. So we needed networks and we needed collaboration. So we, we realized that. And we also knew it was too risky at that time to kind of go all in on one, uh, one product, like a supply chain product or a revenue cycle product, claims adjudication, those types of things. And we needed a way to explore a number of different projects. And, you know, um, and the good news was our heads were full of, of great product ideas. And the other thing that we you know, very clearly realized was uh, there was no market um, we needed to spend a lot Oops. of our time. <laughs> you can imagine how, you know, that's a pretty daunting <laughs> thing to start a company where there's no, there's no market. No one knows what you're talking about when you walk in uh, and start talking about blockchain. So we had to create a way to really educate and organize the market around us and develop a market as we developed products. And so um, we came up with a model for hashed around kind of hacking together a market as we build product. You know, by being in the space for a long time, we did have a good network. So we immediately began searching out um, kind of thought leaders and, and collaborators. Um, and so that was really, uh, we, we hit the ground running, but we formed this model um, that we, we, uh, that's matured uh, significantly. But it's a model where we've got these three areas of our company. One's called collective, which is community building. One's called enterprise, which is basically market development for enterprise customers. And then one's called labs, which is where we uh, build product and we also innovate around business and governance concepts. That model has allowed us to begin, you know, really accelerating market development and finding collaborators and thought leaders who could help us um, and organize them around these use cases that Corey and I have been, uh, have been dreaming of over the last several years. Um, and so now you see us working on a variety of different use cases uh, that we, we kind of prove them out and we take them to market, oftentimes with partners. And, you know, we can, we can go into a little bit more detail um, about a few of the initial uh, product and business efforts that are emerging out of, out of Hashed, but I'll, I'll let Corey comment before we go there. Uh, no, it's just the first company I've been involved in where there wasn't sort of a straight-up product play um, uh, in, in IT. And that, that, that owes to the uniqueness of blockchain in that it, it is a network play. Um, it, it needs transactional counterparties utilizing that shared infrastructure, jointly operating that shared infrastructure in order to get the value out of it. Um, and thus, it's not something that can be sold one-off to a customer. Um, it's got to be convened <laughs> in a way. We need joint buy-in from a range of counterparties. Um, it's not a situation where I can build it and they will come. I think that's a, a really dangerous strategy, um, one not probably bound for much success. Um, and thus, working with enterprises, we need to be acutely aware of their appetite, their interests, their, um, their, their willingness to expose themselves to change and some technical risk and some business risk and and so it pays that we have such you know, wide-ranging conversations with the industry 
Um, we've talked to hundreds and hundreds of players across the diverse ecosystem of healthcare, and we've done that globally. Um, and so when, when a use case comes up um, and we start to think about who, who would be interested in participating in such a network, whose value or what value does it pose to different types of players, we, we've got a very long um, and complex set of notes on everyone in the market um, who's aware of blockchain, what they're willing to do, what they're not willing to do, what kind of value do they want to see demonstrated first. And so I think the real value of Hashtelt is not only in the use case ideation and the building of, of blockchain solutions, but it's also in the network convening. It's, it's how do we entice enterprises to come together and start to utilize shared infrastructure, which is really alien to them in general. We always reach a point in the conversation where they say, oh, but we can't own the, the infrastructure itself. I don't control it. And, I, and that, 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 they have to get over that speed hump before they really start to see the value of, of what comes from not exclusively controlling that transactional infrastructure. This is something that I'm very much familiar with, uh, is, uh, you know, you, you mentioned it's not one of those industries where if you build it, it will come. It's more like if, if, you, if you build it or if you build a company and talk to them and, and educate and, and for a very long time, then they might uh, <laughs> want to sit down with you and then right. might want to talk about some applications that aren't very much you know, fit for this technology. And then maybe you'll build it and maybe then they'll buy it. Um, yeah. So the, the importance of you know, building these networks is, is something that I very much agree with. And so specifically with regards to the, uh, the, the applications that you're building and the solutions that you were building, we'll, we'll come back to those in a, in a few minutes. I just want to first uh, maybe talk about the three different parts of Hash Health. So you mentioned Hash Collective, Hash Hashed Labs and uh, Hashed Enterprise. So as I understand it, Hashed Collective is sort of a community where you're bringing together uh, different you know, market market actors, stakeholders, uh, developers, people from the industry, um, and talking about some of the uh, applications for this technology within the healthcare space. Uh, is that sort of good representation of Hashed yeah, community? Yeah, it, that's right. It's a, it's a community building um, organization within Hashed. Um, and so we, we think it's important to educate and organize companies and innovators and investors and, you know, all, all the different members of kind of this global conversation who really care about healthcare and blockchain and invite them into a, a forum that's open and, and, and neutral that allows people to engage uh, in the use cases they care about. And, um, you know, that has value for us as well. I mean, um, we get to meet a lot of developers and a lot of investors and a lot of potential collaborators um, from around the world through these conferences and meetups and podcasts and um, different uh, innovative community building events, kind of whatever we can do, wherever we can do it, um, tends to provide a lot of valuable feedback uh, for Hashed. And so as we build this ecosystem, this community is now kind of wrapping around those different products and businesses that exist within that ecosystem. So that's, that's collective. And you guys are doing great work there. So I'll, I'll point out that uh, there's actually a Hashed Health podcast uh, that you can find on SoundCloud. I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, and you guys put out uh, videos quite frequently um, explaining key concepts, but also exploring use cases. Your blog, you're actually quite active on your blog posting things regularly there. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a really uh, good uh, wealth of information. Uh, I think, you know, perhaps even like the sort of biggest repository of like information about blockchain and, and how it pertains to, to the, um, to the, to health, uh, yeah. and the health industry. 
Yeah, I think, you know, what hashed is what differentiates us is deep knowledge about healthcare, blockchain, and, and venture capital. I mean, that's kind of the, our core team. And so we try to express our views and our feelings around use cases and around what's going on in the healthcare space that's appropriate for a blockchain audience as frequently as we can. And, um, and I think that um, has, has served us well um, and it's helped us develop this community and this market in a, in a meaningful way. Cool. Um, Corey, could you talk about uh, then the, the labs and your role there and what, what are you doing with the labs? Well, labs is our product dev shop. Um, so we have a team of full-time blockchain developers. Um, um, philosophically, Hashed Health is protocol agnostic. We, we're not developing our own protocol. Um, we're not a platform company per se. We're a solutions company. Um, and so we've built um, on a variety of different protocols in the past year. And, and our, our products that we're launching this year are actually on two different protocols. Uh, we're a member of Hyperledger. Um, and we've utilized various Hyperledger uh, incubations. Um, uh, Fabric 1.1 just came out. Sawtooth Lake 1.0 came out just um, relatively recently. But um, Project Burrow, Project Indy, Project Aroha under Hyperledger, all very interesting developments. And we are constantly uh, staying up to date on what's happening there. We're also a member of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. Um, a lot of our developers came out of the Ethereum space um, as their primary blockchain experience. Um, that's especially valuable um, from a Solidity perspective and smart contract architecture perspective. Um, and so we want to bring the, the best protocol to the use case and not the other way around. Um, and so issues of transactional speed and scale, um, cost of network running, and uh, whether it's proof of work or otherwise, um, levels of privacy that are achievable on different protocols, either from the ledger perspective or from the transactional perspective, can we have individual transactional privacy, uh, how we deploy the network, all of these considerations have to be folded into what we think is the best protocol at any given time. And we also advise everyone to say, hey, you know, this stuff is evolving rapidly, let's, let's hang back <laughs> a little ways and not go all in on a single protocol. Uh, because, you know, every, every two months, it seems uh, over the past two years, seems like a whole new world uh, in terms of blockchain development. Um, so uh, last year in 2017, we did a lot of uh, uh, proof of concept, public demonstration work. Um, we, we built out some, um, some early prototypes around provider identity and credentialing utilizing Fabric and Ethereum. We did some work with the state of Illinois last summer on the Illinois Blockchain Initiative on reciprocal medical licensure uh, between states. And for that, we used the Tendermint platform. Um, got some real experience with their uh, ABCI or application blockchain interface uh, architecture. Um, did some really good learning there. Um, and of course, we're always working uh, on Ethereum. And some of our latest work is looking at some of the, the, the newer um, Ethereum token standards, uh, specifically 7 to 721 and non-fungible tokens. So Labs is where we, we build. Um, we also we like to build in partnership with, with enterprises. Um, and uh, in terms of deployment of that product into the marketplace, there's a variety of ways that can be deployed. We can do it. We can do it in the form of joint ventures, uh, of course, we've been paying attention to the ICO market and, and the feasibility or desirability of that funding path. Um, it's getting increasingly complicated, but uh, it's still there. And so we have to pay attention to it in terms of how these products ultimately get launched out into the marketplace. Interesting. So it's, it seems to me like you're, because I mean, you, you sort of describe hashed health sometimes in, 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 on your website uh, as, a, as a consortium. But in fact, you're more like a, a facilitator of consortiums, providing solutions <laughs> for consortiums. That's right. I mean, we were really our network conveners of, of um, 
of, of networks of enterprises of networks of enterprises who want to participate in a in a use case um, in that transactional infrastructure, but we're also a party to that transactional infrastructure to that network. So we don't just do it on the behalf of others. That's true for both network participation as well as development. Um, you know, we don't build and and then sell it to somebody else to go run. We like to participate in everything we continue to build in, um, and we we do have some higher level visions of ecosystems emerging. Um, but that can't be too tightly planned. Um, so uh, we do have notions of how these solutions start to interconnect. Um, but um, we're, we're, we're happy to wait and let some of that become more apparent before trying to hard code it um, into the ecosystems itself. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're a products company. Um, but, you know, the, um, the work we do, you know, the blockchain space is, you can't just build a product and put the product out there. There's a, there's a lot more to it. You know, this 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 combination of the product and the the business model that around that product and the governance structure, and I think that's what Corey is is better than anyone I've ever met at, which is putting together these different pieces of what creates a meaningful um, blockchain innovation, especially in healthcare with his healthcare background, and so I, I think. Um, and, and you know, if we talk about a couple of the initial products coming out of Hash, I think you know, some of that could become more clear. So that, I guess, takes us to our next topic, which is uh, more on the Hash Enterprise side. So before the show, we were talking about uh, two uh, products that you have built. Uh, so one is a provider cred credential exchange, and the other is a, a decentralized platform um, for healthcare service purchasing. Um, so let's perhaps start with the uh, the provider credential exchange, which uh, at a high level is is sort of an identity management system or reputation system for um, for doctors, healthcare service providers. Uh, think of it sort of as KYC for a doctor. Um, so could, could we uh, please go into detail about this uh, platform and why did you build it and what what problem is it solving fundamentally? Sure. Uh, well, I think KYC is a useful metaphor. Um, the, the, the validation of the experience, education, and uh, competence of a healthcare provider, whether that's a physician, a nurse, um, there's a lots of different professions that require this kind of verification, um, is, is very important, and it's, it's true the world over. So hospitals have to uh, properly credential a physician to understand their competencies um, and their license structures before they are allowed to practice in that hospital um, health insurance companies do the same thing. Um, and in fact, the regulations dictate that you have to do this over and over again, every two years for a hospital, every three years for a health plan. So you're constantly reviewing the credentials of a physician over and over and over just to be sure that they're, um, that they're allowed to practice um, and that, that, that you want to accept the risk of having them practice in your facility, in your clinic, what have you. Um, it's primarily still a paper-based process in the U.S. healthcare industry. Um, where we're faxing copies of licenses, um, completions of graduate medical school uh, education, um, all kinds of artifacts, if you will, about that physician, their education, their experience, and their performance uh, back and forth between hospitals. Um, there's also the, re the requirement to, quote, primary source verify this data. So if there is an authoritative source, I have a medical license from Illinois, the hospital will call Illinois and ask them or go onto a website, Illinois' website, and verify that the license really exists, um, that they really did graduate from that medical school, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and so it's a multi-party, um, friction-filled workflow. And those two keywords sort of raise our blockchain antenna. We've got multiple parties. We've got a lack of trust fundamentally in the artifacts themselves. And we've got a lot of friction, transactional friction in the acquisition and the verification of these artifacts. That sort of starts to get the ball rolling on what we think is a blockchain use case. The reason we built it as an exchange platform um, is to answer the question of what's the business case for doing this on the blockchain? Whose interest does it serve um, to start to move these artifacts and to verify them utilizing a blockchain? And we think we can articulate value for all sides of the equation, which is absolutely vital for making a blockchain idea into a, a real blockchain product um, that, that enterprise will be attracted to. They have to understand the value of doing it in this way versus doing it in any other way. And so the provider credentialing exchange really is an exchange, um, very much akin to financial exchanges or other kinds of data marketplaces or exchanges where we have producers or primary sources of these uh, artifacts um, and we have consumers of them. And of course, in the middle sits the physician themselves about who all this data pertains to. And so we want to provide a streamlined, um, auditable method for uh, primary source entities to make this data available to the consumers. And we want to also attach uh, trust data that we can monitor on the blockchain for the consumer to understand that the artifacts they're receiving really did come from the primary source. We can do that with various key signature technologies. Um, and we can also demonstrate via hashing that the artifact has not been altered in any way. And so we start to build up a, a uh, history of trust, of verification around individual artifacts. And the goal of this is to streamline the process of getting the physician into the room to actually treat the patient and being paid for doing so. Currently in the United States, that process takes about 30 to 45 days to properly credential a physician. Outliers look at 120 um, or even longer number of days, nine months sometimes, to properly uh, assemble all the credentials and to review them and verify them. And, and so doing this with a blockchain with a trust layer, and that's really what the blockchain does there, we think we can significantly reduce the cycle time um, in, the, in this multi-party workflow uh, to enable physicians to be able to practice faster and to be able to start generating reimbursement or getting paid for what they're doing, um, which is the core of the healthcare business. We think we can bring it down substantially. And in fact, we, can, we think we can price it down to the day of how much is being lost per day that this process takes um, to complete. Um, and so what's attractive about the exchange infrastructure is I'm not disintermediating necessarily anybody. I'm providing a forum, um, a marketplace, if you will, for producers and consumers of the data to meet, uh, to discover value, to discover price, et cetera. And I'll let the market decide what's valuable in terms of uh, how much that artifact costs, what's it going to cost me to get that verification signature, digital or otherwise, on that artifact, et cetera. Um, but that's the most efficient way um, to move forward and, and, and to have the, the marketplace itself discover value. And so Provider Credentialing Exchange is the first example of our product that really is a market-level solution. It's not a customer-focused solution. It's meant to address all players in the market, and it's open for all players in the market to participate in. Interesting. So the way we're bringing that to market is to convene that minimally viable network, that phrase we bandied about, um, first in a pilot sense. You know, what's the smallest transactional set of entities that I'll, we will need in order to prove value on the platform, and then uh, articulate means for the network to grow. So 
who can come onto the network, who can go off the network, what's involved in those decision points. And that all involves the governance agreements that we'll have to build up around it as well. And so this, this solution is, is, is being built by Hashed Health, uh, but I suppose you're facilitating sort of the, the, the initial conception of a network um, in, in which different stakeholders, right, the, the hospitals, the universities, you know, the healthcare practitioners, et cetera, will participate. Uh, well, we're launching it as a joint venture um, um, in, into its own company called Provider Credentialing Exchange. Um, with a partner who brought significant um, off-chain tech stack to the solution set. So alongside the blockchain, there is a, um, an unstructured database product um, which stores and can move the artifacts themselves. Some of them can be large, some of them can be highly sensitive. And so we're very uh, acutely attuned to what we're putting on the chain. And so the blockchain itself sits alongside this, um, this exchange platform, if you will, to actually move the data and the blockchain uh, provides a role. Hashed Health's role is to build the blockchain component of that overall solution and to jointly work with our partner on articulating the business case and the use case and to help convene the network. Okay. So as is often the case with, with these types of uh, sort of consortium networks, um, my, my question is, what, what does the blockchain bring here that a, it's like, you know, it, it seems to me like someone could have just started a company Mm -hmm. uh, built a, a SaaS platform with a traditional, you know, SaaS business model, and and even potentially integrated some sort of a a market where uh, an identity provider could be paid for uh, artifacts that they provide. What what does your solution offer that you know a such a SaaS product or a, a, with a trusted third party that presumably healthcare service providers and you know, companies in the healthcare industry would trust what, what what is the advantage well first off with with provider credentialing there's um, a whole range of primary source entities who um, are unique sources of data um, some of those some of those entities already monetize their data uh, in the status quo um, via their own proprietary portals or or verification services etc um, so that that presents the consumer with a bewildering array of sources that I have to assemble in order to get all the data. Um, and so the exchange platform provides the consumer a unified place to try to get that data. Um, no single entity could spring up and provide that data without the consent and participation of a wide variety of parties who provide those artifacts and who are the legal primary source of those artifacts. Um, and so what the blockchain does for those producers of the data is it provides a guarantee that uh, although I'm making my data available on a platform that is not my own, out of my control, the blockchain guarantees visibility and transparency into who's utilizing my data uh, and on what terms so that I can trust making my data available on the common exchange platform because the blockchain guarantees that I'm getting paid what I'm owed and I'm getting full transparency into who's utilizing my data. But the consumers... Uh, the blockchain provides a unique role that a third party cannot do in that the artifact is signed by the primary source entity and that it's fundamentally been unaltered. Um, and such, there can be no third party who can provide that level of trust both for the primary source entities and the consumers of the data without a ledger, an immutable ledger, to sit alongside any exchange platform to provide that level of transparency 
and the cryptographic trust we need around the individual artifacts. The fundamental problem in provider credentialing exchange is that you can't take another person's word necessarily. And so we have to find a means of mediating the movement of data while also providing that trust layer back to the primary source entity ultimately. Um, and we think that blockchain is the unique technology that enables that. Uh, the fundamental problem around all technology and provider credentialing has been trust. And blockchain provides that trust layer in a, I think, unique way. So who, who are the first partners that are onboarding with this, uh, with this platform? Well, I can't name names yet, but we've been in conversations for about five months with a variety of different entities, some of who are stepping up and really want to participate in the launch um, and the pilot. And, um, you know, this is the, the, uh, the fundamental problem of all block, well, not problem, it's the challenge of all blockchain solutions is how do you grow hack the network? Um, so what incentives are there for the early participants versus someone who comes on later? Um, and how do you balance those early incentives with a, with a fair governance structure for the future operation of the network itself? And these are some of the hard problems, hard challenges that we're, we're currently working on and solving. Um, but we'll, we'll be coming out in probably Q2, Q3 with a list of um, the initial participants. Uh, but, you know, we've been talking to health plans. We've been talking to very large health systems, hospital companies, hospital systems, et cetera. We've been talking to a range of primary source entities, um, all who are very interested in the solution set. They just want to know the details. What does this mean for us? What do we get out of it? Um, what's going to be demanded of us? Um, and so that's where the rubber really meets the road and sort of deploying these networks is figuring out all those details and how we start to encode the, our sense of working together into a governance uh, agreement. Sure, I, I, I totally get that. I mean, the, the, the incentive model is, is very important. Uh, however, for a, a platform such as this one where, I mean, I presume there's no monetary unit or monetary token in sort of the, um, the payment and uh, the purchasing of credentials, that is, is that handled off-chain or is that handled by a, a token of value on the system on-chain? Uh, it is handled off-chain and it's, it's uh, uh, you know, priced and uh, transacted in, in, in fiat and in, in USD. Okay. Um, it could, it, it, the, the model could easily accept the token. Um, it's more so our judgment that the market is not ready to to transact, um, and, and and you know uh, at a token that uh, whose acquisition introduces new friction. In addition, we've been doing a lot of research into medium of exchange tokens, um, so tokens used for payment, uh, for buying and selling, um, and those kinds of economies are extremely difficult to balance. Um, and so we, we, you know, it's great on the whiteboard. Um, it's a whole different matter when you're actually trying to get enterprise to sign on to such a platform. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I sort of feel that, that, that pain point of onboarding enterprise clients onto a, onto a platform. You mentioned, you know, so the incentive structure, that, that, to me, that, that's one of the major challenges is converting a proof of concept with an initial group of uh, sort of eager and interested uh, companies and, and clients to a network that will you know, grow and scale and become ubiquitous and, and perhaps even replace the existing systems. How, how do you think you'll get over that hump of uh, going from the POC to the production system? Yeah, well, it, it will be a production system even in pilot stage. So um, we've got the fundamental technical proof of concept already accomplished. 
Um, we think, um, and, and our, the goal of our pilot is to uh, carefully document the ROI. You know, we've got our research um, and numbers on the front end, but we want to bear out that value in actual transactional counterparties. Um, and we think once we do that, um, the, the cost and the burden of this business process and the status quo is such that if we can prove value in operation with a pilot group, expansion of the network will be relatively easy. In addition, you know, due to our experience in healthcare, um, you know, we, we know how to, um, or we know who to look for, for, quote, aggregating uh, participants on the network. So selling it one by one is never going to get you very far. But, you know, can we approach a health system that will bring on multiple hospitals in a marketplace or in a geographical region? Can we go to an association to provide us access to a, a number of health plans, et cetera? And so these aggregation strategies are important. And you just have to know how to navigate uh, the different sort of silos within healthcare on the provider side, on the, on the health plan side, on the primary source side, et cetera. Um, and so those conversations have been ongoing. And so just real quick, you know, um, we've been working on this use case for around two years. Um, so we've built multiple versions of the product and um, on a couple different platforms. And we've kind of had some different iterations around the, the business model for it and so and we've over that period of time we've received a lot of feedback on kind of these different um these different go-to-market strategies and so we at this that's part of why at this point we feel pretty confident that we've kind of landed on the right um the right model uh so uh this will unfold pretty quickly over the next six months or so and um uh, it'll be fun to watch it um get to market Fascinating. Well, I I, uh, I certainly hope to see uh, more about this, and and, and uh, looking forward to seeing what what uh, what this production platform will look like, and who who will be the, the initial um, partners. And I wish you a lot of success with that. The the other use case you mentioned, and uh, this is this is one that uh, that I I find really fascinating. Although I I, I can't really conceive it from from uh, from my uh, sort of European perspective, is a decentralized platform for healthcare service purchasing. Um, so you described it earlier as a platform where non-fungible tokens uh, could be sort of issued by minted. Mm-hmm. and minted, right, by uh, by healthcare uh, service practitioners and sold to you know, purchasers of medical services. Um, so can you can you unpack this use case for us and why it's valuable sure. and why you're building it? Right. Before I talk about the technology, let me just talk about the setup in the U.S. healthcare market. Um, it's primarily addressed at the U.S. market, although it has applicability, I think, the world over. Um, and, and that's a couple of facts. Um, price in healthcare is a negotiation between payer and provider, um, except that in the vast majority of cases globally, the payer is mediated from the consumer. It's not the same entity. Um, so in the United States, a health insurance company reaches a pricing contract with a a physician, a group of physicians, a hospital, that price list is um, under non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> they can never disclose the price to me, the consumer, uh, me, the health plan beneficiary. Um, and so there's great anecdotes. You can just Google it. You go into a physician's office and the first thing they make you sign as a patient is a financial responsibility form saying, I will agree to be financially responsible for all the costs associated with the service I'm about to receive. If you were to turn around and ask the obvious question of what is this going to cost, no one can answer that question for you. No one. Um, and so the world over, 
no one knows what healthcare costs on the front end. Now, in some cases, that's completely understandable. You know, if I'm in an accident, you know, if I have a, a trauma, some sort of emergency condition, if I have diagnosed with a long-term debilitating disease, the cost of that care is unknown because the time frame is unknown. But there are a range, somewhere in the range of 45% of all healthcare services are what we call shoppable in that there are, there's quite a price variation in a market, there's quality variation in a market, and I have the luxury of being able to shop for that service. And in those situations, there is no way for me to shop because there is no understanding of price um, on the part of the buyer. Now, that's true of me as a consumer. It's also true of other kinds of institutional buyers of healthcare services. And in the United States, the prime example of that is the self-insured employer, who is a large enterprise, usually around 500 employees or more. Does it make sense to become a self-insured entity who's paying all medical claims out of pocket? Um, so it's really helpful to think of the self-insured employer as a single-payer entity who is then trying to buy services on behalf of their employees and the covered lives, the, the family members, loved ones, children, dependents, etc., of their employees. And they don't have any tools um, by which to rationally buy health care. Um, the, the way they do it now is they make a, um, they actually make an agreement with a health insurance company to, quote, rent their physician network and inherit the prices that the insurance company negotiated with the physician. Um, but I'm paying out of pocket, but I can't enter into the negotiations around price. Now, we have seen some, um, some innovations among self-insured employers over the last five years or so. Actually, self-insured employers attempting to directly buy services for their employees. There's a great example of Lowe's, um, a, large healthcare, a large company in the United States. It's a, um, a hardware home improvement um, corporation. They made an agreement with the Cleveland Clinic um, to provide back surgeries for all their employees. Um, and so what they had told their employees is if you need back surgery, which is not an uncommon procedure for, for a hardware store, um, for people lifting lumber, et cetera, if you need a back surgery, we will fly you to Cleveland with a loved one, and we'll put the loved one up in a hotel. And we'll have all our surgeries done by Cleveland Clinic because by centralizing it, by negotiating price and quality with one provider, they uh, not only had predictability in their cost, but they actually reduced their overall spend on back surgeries. Because the alternative is to tell the employees, just go to whatever hospital near you and get the surgery wherever you'd like. That introduced such um, an intense price variation in that service um, that it ended up costing Lowe's more than to go out and try to buy the services directly. Now, the problem with that is that it's really hard to, to do those kinds of deals, something called reference pricing schemes in healthcare. Um, it's very cumbersome. There are no tools for it. And so Bramble, um, which is the platform we're talking about that we're building, is designed to allow buyers, buyers can be institutional, governmental, consumer, buyers of healthcare services to act in an economically rational way around the purchase of services. And to do that, we've created a platform that allows the providers of the service to represent their service in a non-fungible token structure, um, an ERC-721 compliant asset token, which represents a specific position, a specific service under specific terms and conditions, and then the ability to make that service available on an exchange marketplace um, for buyers to, um, to meet. And just simply by creating a service asset that has a time bound to it, it's redeemable within a certain amount of time, we introduce a, 
whole new variety of purchasing strategies around buying healthcare services. Instead of me just going to get an MRI, because that's what I'm told I need, with no understanding of the quality of the MRI I'm receiving or the cost, and if you look at procedures like MRIs or colonoscopies, et cetera, price variation, even in a single city in the United States, can be extreme, as much as 10x between providers. So when I need those kinds of services, I now have the ability to go out and either prepay for them uh, or do a future option um, to buy that service um, or a whole variety of outcomes-based payment models where I say, I'll pay you some now, I'll hold some in, in escrow um, based upon some quality outcome from the procedure I'm buying from you. Um, we've got a whole new vocabulary for buying, but the fundamental philosophical premise is to allow the buyers and sellers to discover value through marketplace dynamics, which is something new under the sun for healthcare services, but is very common in almost every other aspect of our lives in terms of purchasing even services um, whose cost may not be well known at the outset. Uh, and so this is done elsewhere. It's just simply not done in healthcare. And we want to fundamentally change that through the Bramble platform. Okay. Uh, so there's a lot here. Yeah. Now, so the, the, the first thing I'd, I'd like to, to maybe address is the, 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 the pricing. Um, I mean, of course, here uh, in, in France, um, you, you go to the doctor and the price is set by the government, right? So the price is set by the state. You pay 23 euros for a doctor's visit. Uh, you usually pay that up front or, you know, some doctors, you don't pay it up front. You sim they simply get reimbursed by, social, by, uh, by the Medicare organization. And other doctors... Perhaps a higher quality a doctor, or maybe a doctor that you know provides um, additional services, has the ability to charge more, and certain insurance companies will pay that premium, right? Sort of, um, I guess, higher end doctors um, or specialists, expanded services, specialists, right? Expanded services, and so there's predictability in the price. So, and even for a non-conventional doctor that charges more. There's still some predictability because there's sort of tiers uh, in the service offering. So you can't really go any, any higher than that. And every type of medical procedure uh, or service offering, I presume, I believe, has a has this same sort of structure. So insurance companies are, you know, sort of have a, a pricing structure that they can uh, adhere to. And if, you know, if you want to buy sort of the basic insurance, you can buy that. Or if you want to buy the insurance that gets you the premium doctor, you can go buy, you can buy that insurance and some employers will offer that. So it's a very different model. And, and so when you talk about price fluctuations or sort of hedging for the future price of a procedure or a service offering, that idea, that sort of market idea and healthcare to me is, is slightly Foreign. Sure. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, don't think about so, it in terms of hedging future price variation because prices don't necessarily fluctuate that much, especially on an annual basis. But it does introduce predictability for the buyer in the sense of I know I can buy all the surgeries of a certain type for I need for my employees right now. Um, and maybe I can get a discount by buying it in bulk and paying up front. Um, or uh, as a buyer myself, I can put out an ask on the market. I need five surgeries. I'm willing to pay up to X um, if these quality metrics can be met. Who wants my surgeries? Who wants my business, mm. um, in essence? And so we're starting to create um, a sort of an asset marketplace around these services. But fundamentally, price um, is always uh, contextual value. 
Um, and thus, when it is set by a single entity, now in your case, there is a single payer. So payer has the right to sort of, uh, you know, have an out, out, outsized uh, um, uh, opinion about what things ought to cost, right? If you don't like it, you can go elsewhere is fundamentally um, the premise there. Um, but price uh, being negotiated on someone else's behalf does not take into account what they value. And, and so, you know, for instance, what I want in a primary care doctor may not be the lowest cost doctor. It may be a doctor who can, who can meet me after work hours. It may be a doctor who agrees with me religiously or philosophically or has opinions about diet um, that are important to me. Um, certainly my wife and, you know, we were selecting an OB for the birth of our children. That's a very specific list of what kind of doctor I want to work with um, to bring my children into the world. Um, so I want a female doctor. I want a doctor under the age of 35 who understands fundamentally my experience. I want a doctor from my ethnic group or who speaks my language. And so value and price is a very contextual and personal thing, especially in healthcare. And we don't have uh, market dynamics now that allow anyone to discover price, much less value um, for the services that we, that we pay for. But ultimately, um, a lot of that payment comes from me, the consumer. So, I mean, this might be particular to the United States, but um, the majority of U.S. workers um, have insurance that's sponsored by their employer. And the majority of those workers also have something called a high deductible health plan. So in addition to paying $15,000, of my money for my premium for health insurance, I'm also responsible for now an average $7,500 deductible before my insurance kicks in. Which And the majority of Americans never hit their deductible because, thank God, they're well and they don't need to use the system a lot. But what fundamentally means is that for the entire year, I'm paying all my health care out of pocket, coming out of my pocket directly. And yet I have no say in understanding price options, quality options, service variation offerings, et cetera. I show up and they do something for me slash to me, and I get a bill 45, 60 days later outlining my responsibility to that, but I can't know ahead of time. And that encourages a lot of perverse economic incentives on the part of payers and the part of service providers to not give you that information, to make decisions um, um, with you out of the loop. And I think that is fundamentally wrong, um, but I think we can get a lot more value by bringing and activating buyers of healthcare um, and putting them in communication with the service providers. I think the service providers will get a lot of value out of this setup as well. I mean, in the United States, CAQH has shown that um, healthcare providers spend 14% of every dollar um, simply to recoup that dollar. Um, so the AR cycle is about 60 days with about a 14% overhead. You know, if you compare that to retail in the United States, whose, whose payment overhead is 2%, um, the physicians are giving up a significant amount of money simply to get paid in 60, uh, 60 to 120 days. Our system can allow the physician to name their price, and if the market likes their price, they can get paid upfront um, with very little overhead compared to the traditional uh, medical claims system. And so fundamentally, Bramble is a new payment rail um, for, for healthcare services that puts the buyer of the service in, uh, into a closer proximity to the service provider in order to negotiate and discover value. And the, you know, it's creating a transparent, competitive playing field where value is rewarded and people are able to shop based off of 
reputation or cost or, or their definition of value. Um, and I think what it also does is it creates a platform upon which we can get very innovative in terms of the types of services that are offered on the platform. Um, so it goes way beyond our current kind of, you know, just MRIs and colonoscopies and shoppable healthcare services. You can start to bundle together very innovative packages of healthcare uh, services and telemedicine and travel medicine and surgical episodes and, you know, things that are designed specifically for certain populations of, of people. And you can also start to organize the, the market on the buy and sell side in interesting new ways as well. So um, it really kind of changes the container around how health services are uh, transacted today. Interesting. Um, one of the things that we've talked about a little bit before the show and I'd like to address is um, perhaps the, the risk that uh, speculators try to take advantage of arbitrage opportunities. So buy up uh, large swaths of you know, types of services or buy up you know, the entire service offering of a, a specific practitioner or, or, or group or hospital uh, company and then sell those on the secondary market at a, at a higher price. Can you address those, you know, this and, and perhaps other risks uh, of attributing too much sort of uh, market freedom to um, uh, something as important to society as healthcare? Sure. Well, it's important to point out at the outset that that's already what happens. <laughs> so what you describe now perfectly describes what health insurance companies do with, with networks of providers. Uh, so they negotiate a price. Um, they relist that price in the form of premium payments, um, and they take a margin off the top of that. Um, and so your ability to access a network of physicians is controlled by what insurance company and premium you pay, and they've already bought up all the services from those providers and are relisting them for you in the form of your premium payment. So that, that, that's pretty descriptive of what's happening in the status quo. Our system addresses it in two fundamental ways. Um, the first applies only to our platform, and the second, of course, applies both to our platform and, and more broadly, uh, even in the status quo now. Um, so the first is that these non-fungible tokens um, have an expiration date. Uh, this is essentially a service-backed asset uh, that entitles you to the service within a given time frame. Uh, that time frame might be 90 days, it might be a year, but eventually it, it, it evaporates or gets burned. Uh, because it's not been fundamentally redeemed. That's important for the provider not to have a, an open-ended liability on their books to provide a service at some future date if that future date is not bound by a window. But that it has an important function on price in that um, uh, our system uh, connotes a premium price dependent upon the size of that time window. Um, and so the longer the time window, the higher the premium price because it gives you more flexibility in how you want to use that service. Um, and so what that means is these non-fungible tokens are constantly depreciating in value. They never appreciate in value. Um, and so it doesn't make sense to buy up and resell unless you radically alter the price um, of that because these are always depreciating there. Um, the second defense against um, um, speculative arbitrage is that we're talking about a very flexible supply of services. Um, there is a hard limit on the number of providers that exist in the given market and the number of services that can be physically delivered within a certain time frame. Um, but ultimately, it's up to the provider um, to dictate supply. And so if someone were to buy up my services and relist them at a higher price than I, I, what I was offering on the market, I would simply mint more NFT tokens 
and offer them at that lower price, knowing that the market will respond to my price point and not that arbitrage one. So we really um, um, uh, enable or empower the, the provider, um, the, the service provider, to be in control of supply as a means of controlling third-party speculative arbitrage. They can do that today. So, I mean, when I go into a physician, if uh, I don't have insurance or um, the premium is too high or my deductible is too high, physicians are willing to negotiate with me to bring down that cost um, for me with payment plans and other kinds of options right now. Um, so we see that there already is that sort of supply and price flexibility on the part of providers. We just want to provide them with an easier platform in which to, um, to, to effectuate that. One other comment here is that um, part of the information that's embedded into the NFTs is kind of these terms and conditions. And that's an area where we can start to innovate over time in terms of the types of contracts that exist on top of the marketplace that buyers and sellers can enter into. And so I think there's a lot of different things that we can um, do to uh, spur innovation and, and um, make sure that the, uh, the producers, the mentors of these tokens are um, seeing the right level of value and participation um, through, uh, through those processes. So we've got some ideas about how this kind of unfolds over time. And we're going to learn a lot over the first you know, few years of this product and, and continue to mature it. But we feel like we're at a point now where it's, it's time to uh, get this thing out into the wild and see how it's being used. And we're under no um, illusions that this is not a very forward-looking um, idea. It comes out of left field for a lot of people. Um, I think it resonates a lot with the experience in the United States of, of, of being a consumer of healthcare, a buyer of healthcare services. But we've already started to talk about the uh, or engage with parties who could perform the uh, form the minimally viable network. Where I think Bramble gets very interested, and that's the, the name of the platform itself, Bramble, um, is that it meets where a lot of uh, very forward-thinking value-based purchasing strategies that Medicare has piloted um, and commercial insurance is piloting and self-insured employers and employer uh, purchasing groups are interested in uh, utilizing as a means of controlling costs. They just don't have tools um, to, to, to pursue those strategies. And so I think Bramble meets the, the, the sort of leading edge of, of innovative payment design for healthcare in, in a unique way. And we draw on our own experience in those kinds of movements over the past 10 years um, in the design of Bramble. Cool. And so Bramble will be, uh, you, you mentioned uh, an Ethereum-based platform will be on the public Ethereum network, or is this going to be a, a consortium network deployment? Um, the movement of the NFTs and ownership of it is tracked on the, actually the public Ethereum chain. That's our, our, our design at the moment. It utilizes that public utility that Ethereum is, is a really robust, very secure chain. Uh, the data about the tokens themselves is held off chain. And so there is a, uh, a, central, a semi-centralized component to the overall platform that utilizes Ethereum as transactional settlement um, and, and ownership provenance of those service tokens themselves. Um, but uh, given privacy regulations and healthcare, et cetera, there is a component that, um, that we need to run off chain in order to ensure uh, trans uh, privacy for medical reasons. And what is the uh, timeline here for deployment or release? Uh, we hope to have the, the V1 pilot um, in, in, in Q4 of 20, uh, 2018. 
So we've already done some significant work. Our team of developers showed off a very early build of it at uh, the Ethereum Waterloo Hackathon last fall. Um, it was That project was entitled Convergence, um, but it fundamentally showed how to create a, um, a basic service asset token um, and move that around um, on, on the Ethereum blockchain. We've been really... Um, I had a lot of lift from the ongoing development of the 721 uh, non-fungible token standard on Ethereum, um, which has brought a lot of good thinking about how these NFTs are not only different from ERC-20, but how they interact with smart contracts and what kind of smart contract functions do you need in order to effectuate um, a real economy around NFTs. Cool. This is uh, this is all really fascinating stuff. I mean, there's lots more we could talk about. I, I, I really wanted to touch on... Uh, on identity systems and how they pertain to the medical space. And, uh, but unfortunately, um, we are running a bit long, uh, so we'll, we'll have to keep that for another, another conversation. Uh, but thank you very much for coming on, guys. It was fascinating speaking with you and learning all about how you guys are disrupting uh, the healthcare space. Yeah, thank you for having us. Hey, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for once again tuning in. Uh, you can subscribe to Epicenter uh, on iTunes, SoundCloud, your favorite podcast app. We're also on YouTube. And you can also uh, leave us an iTunes review. And we really enjoy it and appreciate when you do. And it helps people find the show. And of course, you can join our Gitter community, which is at epicenter.tv slash Gitter. Uh, if you want to leave us feedback, or if you want to interact with other um, Epicenter listeners. So thanks so much. And we look forward to being back next week.